Well, let's get started. Uh, as people file into the room, um, this is, this is uh, episode two of the day. Uh, Chris Herring was, was kind enough to join me this morning. Uh, we did not have an audience for that one because uh, he had a, a tight time window. But if you have not listened to that, um, check that out. Chris had a lot of really great stuff on his uh, book, Blood in the Garden. And it's just one of the, the best people in basketball media. Another one of, you see that segue. Another <laughs> one of the best people in basketball media is, uh, is a, a friend of mine from, uh, from, from many, many years, uh, Adam Mares of uh, DNVR. Uh, Adam, first of all, thanks for coming on. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Uh, thanks for having me on. And yes, you uh, almost even undersold Chris Herring, one of my favorite. We all have our like friends in the industry, our people. He's like the guy I think everybody just roots for that guy because he's, he's just the best. He's he's someone who I'm I'm reticent to ask favors of because first of all I feel like the favor bank is like so far in his in his direction yeah. just because he will bend over backwards and then all totally. the way back around to accommodate even when he shouldn't right like, from from a standpoint of his own sanity so yeah no Chris Chris is great and go listen to that pod but um uh but not while we're doing this one uh so uh Denver Nuggets Nikola Jokic. Uh, we were just talking right before we started how, uh, despite being uh, one of the foremost Nuggets partisans uh, on the interwebs, you're actually, um, I don't want to say bored, but annoyed by the MVP, MVP discussion. Man, that's a great way to put it because I'm not bored of it. It's actually a very interesting thing. It, we just never have interesting conversations, especially on Twitter about it. So it, it's just so hard. Oh, and we were saying beforehand, even ourselves, I think pragmatic people, even we can get sucked into the annoying aspects of an MVP debate so easily when you're doing it on a platform that only allows you a certain amount of characters at a time or what have you. But I'm definitely – I'm annoyed with, with how we talk about it, but I'm not bored because it's really the, – the MVP candidates this year are all so different that how you talk about it really says a lot about how you view basketball. There's that, but there's also sort of some of the narrative elements. Like I was thinking about this earlier when I was going to get lunch and – you know, Embiid is obviously having a fantastic season, but so are Jokic and Giannis. But it seems like um, their their exceptionalist, the, the, how exceptional they are, is almost baked in and expected, and they're almost penalized by their past success. Yeah, <laughs> I, there's definitely like the idea of. We saw that with, with Steve Nash too. Like, is he does he warrant being a two time back to back MVP when there's been so few of those? So you start to go to historical precedent. If you make somebody a back to back MVP, does that mean you're saying they're one of the ten best players to ever play since only ten guys have ever done that? And I think that that does a disservice to it because the MVP, while it is the most valuable player. Sometimes it's just about how a season shakes or a season a guy had or this or that. And so I think there's definitely that. People feel like we're always extrapolating the 50-year legacy of a player when really we should just be extrapolating the 365-day legacy of a player. Well, not even that. Even more like the 200-day legacy of a player. Right, right. right. This, is a, this is a regular season award. And so right. it's like, you know, even though, even though like it was pretty obvious last season that there was like Giannis would have had to average 45 a game. Two right. one MVP last year because well he can't really be that good because look what happened to them in the playoffs right right and, you know and you know on some level that's silly on the other that's kind of legit like you know because in basketball um, it's not like it's it's not like uh, you know baseball where okay Mike Trout can be the best player of the generation of many generations right. but he can't 
make the Angels a contender by himself. Right. Uh, the best basketball players kind of can and do. So there is, it's not, this is me, I'm editorializing here. And this is, you know, I had Ben Taylor on earlier this year, and he pushed back on me pretty strongly on this. But I kind of think team success does have a, does have a, a fair amount to do with that sort of, at least the narrative of that. Oh, I, I so strongly agree with this, though, Seth, actually, because people have asked me this when the Nuggets, you know, early on when they were, it wasn't about their seeding, because I think the seeding aspect of it can be like, hey, we're talking about a game or two here or there, like, whatever. But, like, when a team is, you know, in the seven seed and they're 10 games behind the six or whatever, like, that stuff to me does matter. Like, that, that stuff should factor in, in large part because as much as I think a guy like Jokic, you know, his team record does not necessarily reflect the impact that he has on that team. I also just don't trust us to say it doesn't matter at all because we're going to get to a point where somebody has an outlier season when they, Russell Westbrook is a kind of a crazy example of this, but there were years where he was averaging a triple double where you say, yes, but are we sure it's contributing to the impact that we have? So I'm okay with saying, Hey, team record actually should weigh in on this a lot. But one of the things that the, the uh, MVP, like the, we never used to do this, at least I don't remember it, talking about it in October, November, December, it, that it can get annoying, but there are some positive things that have come out of it. Number one, it, it is a regular season and award, and we've diminished the importance of the regular season so much that I kind of like that we say, hey, forget playoffs. This is a guy that carried the league, not just as a great player, but also like we need people to be interested in the regular season. So let's talk about guys that have taken that seriously and have performed well during this part that we've all agreed is meaningless. But two, we have started to break from some of the the guide rails that were absolute and we have made them more like they factor into the conversation, but they are not exclusive or all encompassing. And, and team record is a part of that. It's very important. But I think it has gotten diminished just a little bit and maybe a perfect amount so that we can have interesting conversations about it. Sure. No, it's uh, the, the other part I, the, that, that I'll add is that by talking about it all season, it fully becomes a full season award instead of I can right. think of times in the past where um, the one that, that, that comes to mind most frequently is the year that uh, Joakim Noah won Defensive Player of the Year. Mm. Um, and, and I mean, I, if you go back and look, I think right here, it was pretty clearly, well, I won't say, I, th- I thought Roy Clippert was, was by some distance the best defensive player that year, but Noah had a strong finishing kick, including right. you know, a lot of triple doubles, uh, coming right, down the right. stretch of that season, which shouldn't matter for defensive player of the year, but it did. Right. Um, and it, but it was because since it became, well, you know, um, you know, the March games somehow carried more weight in that discussion than the November games did. Right. And that, that, and, and considering that, you know, uh, um, it's been shown that, that uh, games in November are at least as predictive of playoff success. Right. If not more so than games in March. That seems kind of backwards. <laughs> so at least, you know, at least we, we're having, you know, by constantly doing, you know, I think Tim Bontemps does us a little bit of a service by his, his straw poll because it forces us to, right. to think about it over and over again. And it's just like, okay, Steph Curry was great to start the year, but that only right. lasted. And he's, you know, he's fallen off and maybe he can finish the year with a strong kick and get back in the discussion. But at the same time, we, we've all sort of internalized that trough. Right. And I think, and I a hundred percent agree with you on that one. Like it, we can look back, especially with straw polls and, and those types of things and say, what were we thinking in November, December? The where the only place I'm going to get off of that train is 
Well, I think we should never talk about team record or point differentials or any of this stuff in December. Like January 1st is maybe the first time you could start to mention these as a keep an eye on. Like such and such team is the sixth seed. Keep an eye on that. Let's see what they do. Not, he can't be, he's a sixth. Some of these teams, the, the schedules are unbalanced. Like maybe you just had a tough December and now your team is four games behind the one seed. But by the end of January, you're going to be the one seed. So that's the only area. So many of the things that we should analyze at the end of the year, we start analyzing in December. And you know this as much as anyone. I'm sure you get annoyed at me when I post like individual player net ratings and this or that, although we could argue that if you want. But <laughs> well, I, I know I'm in a group chat of yours somewhere, like, you know, you posting like, oh, here he goes again with this one. Um, but, but those things are especially dumb when we're doing them in November and the sample sizes are like 70 minutes. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I, you know, I think when I've seen it, you've generally been pretty careful about saying, Hey, Denver is 25 points better when Jokic is on the floor or, or, or Denver is a plus eight with. So so here's the thing. Here's, here's how I feel about that, because that is the correct, like, if we're talking about the logical, how do you extrapolate a net rating? If I say Jokic has a 122 offensive rating, I think that we are at the point now. This is terminology that has been used for 10 years that I think most people understand that means the same thing as the Nuggets have an offensive rating of 122 when Jokic is on the court. And I even think, by and large, most people have the understanding that that also is context-dependent on who is he playing with. So I, I agree with you. That, like Twitter is only so many words. And sometimes you're making a point and you say, yeah, but look, Jokic's offensive rating is this, blah, 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 blah. Like, if I had to put all of the context into the tweet, I'm out of the tweet by the time the context is over. Right. So that's part of it for me is I just feel like we are all at a point where we understand those numbers are not individual numbers, but they can point to trends that, again, are not absolute. They just can provide you another window to start looking for other sort of variables and contexts. Having gotten myself in trouble where I assumed people understood things about the <laughs> language being used that they didn't, even if they claimed they might have, I, mm. I soft disagree with you there. Okay. I like, you know, I, I think that, that yes, there are definitely people who understand the way you said it, but this just, this came up yesterday when, you know, I was, I was, I was kind of noodling around trying to figure out who should be defensive player of the year this year. And it's like, well, Robert Williams has the best defensive rating. It's like, no, right, Robert, right, like right. it's, it's the implication that, you know, you know, because he's standing there when this, and like, this isn't a knock on Robert Williams. This is just like, you know, that's, that's, this is, this is bad evidence of, 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 of a thing. Right. Um, but that, that be, be that as it may, I, we got off track here. Uh, I think it's on track though. Cause I like, cause so many of these things are actually how we talk about MVPs and this or that. And yeah. so just kind of talking about all of the different way, layers of, of, of how these things get stacked on top of each other to me is, is, is pretty, pretty meaningful. So let's circle back around. Would you agree that it should be a two-person race, or do no. you think that do you think that 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 Giannis has done enough to get to get into that discussion? I, I think absolutely Giannis has done enough. I think he's into it, and you'll laugh at that. Like I do think it's probably a three-person a three-person race there, but I still enjoy us talking about a John ja Morant, a Demar Derozan, and even a Chris Paul. Now, of course, Chris Paul being out, this or that. And I'm just going to say this to set the table because I know we're going to move away from it really quick. I've thought a lot over my 10 years now doing this, whatever, eight years, whatever it's been. Because going back, you think a LeBron versus a Kobe Bryant, who's a more valuable player? Still, I mean, I think that's a very easy answer. But I think that the Kobe, uh, the aspect of Kobe's game that gets overlooked is sort of just the like, what do you occupy in a team's mind? 
in a half court that maybe has nothing to do. And, and so DeMar DeRozan is the perfect example of this because if you look at his stats and the impact he has, not at all comparable to a Jokic, not at all comparable to a, uh, you know, to a lot of these guys who are do-it-all guys like a Luka or this or that. And I think with Chris Paul, it's the same. It's even more pronounced with Chris Paul where you say, yeah, but the team's good without him on the court. And yes, but other guys create and do this or that. But I do think there's something to the like soul you give to a team as a player that is very hard to quantify. And DeMar DeRozan deserves at least the mention. I know it's dropped off because they're on this losing streak and he's kind of been in a slump. So maybe it's, it becomes a moot point. But when people talked about it, you know, two weeks ago, three weeks ago about, hey, he needs to be in here. I, I accept it. Like I, I'm open to talking about that because I think he provides something that's especially hard to quantify. I think, I mean, I agree with you. I think uh, the, the last version of, of, of Tim Strapple, I believe I had DeRozan fifth. So okay. he, was, he, was, he was definitely on my, my, my ballot. Um, and, and Chris Paul was second, to be perfectly honest. But this was before he heard himself. Yeah. So, um, uh, so I, I agree with you on both of those. And, and DeRozan is an inter- interesting one, actually, because, like, um, th- this is, you know, you mentioned earlier when Westbrook won the, the MVP. The bad argument for him winning the MVP that year was his triple-double. The good argument was <laughs> right. how, like, ridiculous he was in, in clutch games that year. Right, so it's like, and and uh, I, I I don't know if I gave this to you or not. When when I looked at it, it was about a week ago. I looked at it, and um, like if you if you look at like you know uh, estimated plus minus is sort of one of the best catch alls this year, and um, if you look at the, the gap between sort of the estimated wins that Jokic has provided this year between the, the that gap between him and DeRozan um, is basically the same as the gap between. DeRozan and Jokic the other way on sort of uh, clutch on like win probability right. added through clutch yeah. shooting. And so it's like now if you're factoring in everything the clutch we have to talk about Jokic has made like all like you know four or five of these like big defensive plays late in game that don't necessarily right. show up in that stat. But still that's a that's sort of an interesting like if you're asking me who to predict who is the better or discuss who's the better player right, and more right, likely right. to continue being impactful it's the guy who has sort of the all game impact. But if you're saying who has had the most impact on his team's success and success being record this year, then that's a, it becomes a much more open question because like, okay, you think some of those, those game winners, like, you know, one legged fadeaway threes. Okay. Maybe that that's not repeatable. It still went in and he made it and he, he proved it. He made it twice in a row, like literally two days in a row. And what's the bump a team gets from that? Like, I think it's the same with Chris Paul. We've seen this with the Suns. Their team is almost cocky in fourth quarters. And when they talk about it, they're like, oh, we just know it's time. Like I looked over at Chris and I said, here we go. Let's go. And that confidence comes from having a player that knows we're going to get exactly what we want in these moments, or I'm going to get exactly what I want in these moments. And, and it, there's just a soul that, that provides a team, a confidence that provides a team, and DeMar and Chris Ball both do that. But here's the thing. Now I've hopefully set the context so that I have – so people see I'm not just fully a homer, even though I'm covering the Nuggets more than any other team. I think Jokic might just be the best at all of these things. He might be the best or tied for best engine, engine, just like, okay, you can run it. It doesn't matter what guys you roll out on the court. Jokic is going to adapt and make those guys the best version of themselves. It might not just be that he's the most clutch player and he plays his best when, the, when 
it matters. And in winning time, he takes his game up another level. Or in a big games, he takes his game. It might not just be that he can create his own shot and has become a dominant and super, like, ridiculously high efficient scorer. Like, the efficiency numbers are insane. You think he's a low-volume scorer. He's the 10th leading scorer in the NBA. And he's only 10th leading scorer because he only plays 33 minutes and because he wants to be. When it comes to clutch time, it's not surprising when he scores 30 points in 10 minutes or whatever it was the other day uh, in the closeout of New Orleans. So I, I'm bold enough now, and you know I've been high on him. I'm bold enough right now to just say I'm not, it's not definitive, but Yoke just might be the best at all of these things. And if not the best, tied for best in every category that you can measure basketball, both eye test, like breaking it down skill by skill, but also obviously by the numbers. So you, you kind of stole my thunder there a little bit because, you know, we, you were mentioning sort of the calmness. And that's, that's really been, you know, watching Bulls late in games. It's sort of the degree to which DeRozan it just doesn't get hurried and right to his spots. And it's like, okay, you're either going to foul me or I'm going to rise up and shoot a jump shot. Those are the two things that could possibly yep. happen here. Um, and, you know, maybe it's a function of sort of his, his sort of, um, I don't know, deliberate's probably not the right word. I think I feel like soccer probably has better terminology to discuss sort of the the languid way that, that Jokic can play at times um, than basketball does. But he's also similarly just because he's not, you know, in part because he's not looking to leap over people, Jokic doesn't get sped up either. He's going to get to where he gets to and, you know, kind of hold the ball out there and see what you do and then make a decision and it's going to be on his own time frame. And, yeah, so maybe, maybe like, DeRozan has been, like, better – like has made a few more of those shots this year, but uh, it's not like it's not like Jokic doesn't fill you with uh, with confidence when he's got the ball in his hands in that spot. Supreme confidence—that's the thing. And what's funny about Jokic is, I know this is going to sound crazy, but when you watch players for years and years, you just kind of pick up on—I'm not going to say I know what he's thinking, but you pick up on patterns of his approach. And the game he had the other night against New Orleans where it just was like he threw out the book, like he threw out like, okay, I've been setting the table all game. I've been doing that. They're sending the double. They're doing whatever. It got to a point, one, Big Val was in foul trouble, so he knew that. And two, nobody was making shots in that game. Like there, you just knew if he kept kicking out to the open guy, there was going to be diminishing returns. So he just started scoring through double and triple teams and just saying, whatever, I can do this. And part of me really believes that Nicola is at a place right now, whether he knows it or not, where a double team's not enough. Like a double team he can still make the smart play for a certain amount of time. But when push comes to shove, Jokic versus double team is still like a top 10 scorer in the NBA. And so I, I, and that's the thing that I think is kind of pushing him into this. George Carl the other day, I do a show with George Carl, a podcast with him every other week. And the other day he predicted that Jokic will go down as a top 10 player of all time. And I look at that thing and I say, well, first of all, I don't think he will because he can't for some reason be put in the top five by most people right now. So I think his legacy will always be sort of controversial or this or that. But I, I, look, I, I would like the record to reflect I have receipts that I put him in the top <laughs> players in the game today. Just he went to tier 1A. Yeah, tier 1A. He got, the, he got the bump. I was very happy to see it. But I'm watching him and I think I, I, we've seen this in the playoffs. We've seen it in big games, this or that. I kind of think it's there and it's hiding. And maybe it's not it's hiding in plain sight. But it's there that this guy might get to the playoffs and just start putting up 30, 35 point, point, point totals. He just doesn't do it because he knows there's this like, you know, he's trying to get other guys. It's a long season. He wants to build all these different things. But when push comes to shove and it's late in games, I just have so much confidence that he's going to get them over the hump if it's close. So 
I, I have. I, I'm gonna. I'm gonna ask you to say nice things about the other two candidates here in a second. Sure. But, but before that, I just. Um, I am kind of maybe this is this is facile, but you, you know you mentioned like him him up in his scoring, and that's I think between that and being in somewhat better condition, which has helped him on the defensive end. I think the biggest change in his has been like, okay, I'll score a bunch too. And yeah. it feels like maybe this is, this is again, too fast for a narrative, was two years ago in the bubble playoffs, Utah started that series with the ethic of, we're going to make Jokic score to beat us. Right, and right. it kind of took him a little bit to like, well, I guess I have to do this then. Right. And then since then, um, basically, it's been like, okay, I guess I'm a scorer now too. Right. I and think, yeah, go, go ahead. On to something there, or is that just, is that just like, you know, a convenient point in time from which to draw that? I think you might even be underselling it a little bit, because I, I agree with you that that has been a sort of two and a half years transformation. Like, you know, just slowly where it's like, okay, I have to score, I have to score. I think he's at the point now where he actually just enjoys it. And, and it's funny, like, I, I, I like read these books on like, or, or have these conversations about like child psychology, because I have kids and I'm always trying to think like, you know, how do you get them into doing piano or this or that, right? And so much of like what you enjoy in life, especially as a child, is what you're good at. Like if you have some success doing a, the, playing the piano, all of a sudden you start enjoying doing it because, you know, you're doing this or that. I think with Yoke, this was a two and a half year process from he's always been a good scorer. Was he a good volume scorer? And now, then he was good. Now he's great. And now he's dominant. And I think there's something to like, hey, I'm actually good at this. This is a lot more fun. I, I love passing. I love doing this. I said this on Zach Lowe's show the other day, but after a game-saving block the other day, somebody asked him, would you rather have a game-saving block, a game-winning assist, or a game-winning shot? By, by the way, he had one of each of those over the course of like 10 days. But he said, like, which one would you rather have? And he, to my surprise, he said a game-winning shot. He said, I think it might be a shot because it's just fun to see the ball go in. Like when you shoot it and you see the ball go in to end the game or something. And I don't think he would have said that two, three years ago. I just no, think he's at a point me. now he's so dominant offensively as a scorer that he's kind of like, you know what? I like taking it to guys one-on-one, -on -one, one versus two, and nobody can stop me. I kind of enjoy that. So having, having uh, spent the first 20 minutes or so just, just gassing up your guy, yeah. um, <laughs> what would you say are the best arguments for uh, each of, you know, uh, Giannis has kind of crept back into discussion as the, the Bucks have kind of, you know, they had – I was at many of those games earlier this year. The Bucks did not have their roster on the floor. Mm -hmm. and the mm -hmm. performance reflected that. Um, but and now that he's kind of worked his way back into it, and Embiid is obviously has been there all year, um, what would you say, what is your perception of the best case for each of those guys in the MVP discussion? I mean, Embiid has gone through two stretches this season. One was early on, and then another one, I think, a little bit more recently. He had a little bit of a lull there for a while, I think, in February. Um, but, but for most of those stretches as a scorer, there just wasn't an answer for him. His mid range jumper was elite. His, his back to the basket game is obviously has been elite for a long time. Um, he's picked better spots, I think, from where he's shooting the three point shot. And then his, as a passer, he's just grown so much. So to me, like offensively, you know, obviously you could put him on par with Jokic in terms of guys that you just think like a team doesn't. It's not that there's a game plan for him. It's that there isn't a game plan. You just have to pick whatever you hope is going to work on that given night enough to, to overcome it. But I think the one thing that Embiid has, and Nuggets fans are going to hate me for saying this, but the one thing he has that gets underrated in part because it's annoying, drawing fouls is such a big deal. 
it's just such a big like the Nuggets are going to play on Monday. They play at Philadelphia, and I, everybody's so excited for that matchup. Like I, I don't know how it's going to go. It could go either way. I mean, Seventy Sixers are obviously rolling with James Harden, but the one thing I think about is what if Jokic fouls out? He never fouls out, but that's a game where Embiid fouls everybody out. And so that's such a valuable skill. And when you talk about head-to-head, is Jokic going to foul and beat out? Maybe. Maybe not. I mean, he fouls guys, He draws a lot of fouls too, but not to the level that Embiid does. And that's just such a valuable skill that has ripple effects that don't show up in some of these like plus minus, you know, advanced stats. But they have an impact when your best players are in foul trouble and can't defend the right way or they're off the court and all of a sudden you're playing with secondary players. Uh, that, uh, that, that, that's a really, really good thing to note and you know i i feel like the discussion of of the quote-unquote foul-seeking behavior of at least Embiid, we can we can talk about harden like yeah what we want but like when Embiid goes to the free throw line he gets fouled like it is a it is a it is a skill to put yourself in situations where when there is contact it's contact in such a way that it is a foul and not just um you know incidental contact Right, um, you know he's he's very good at when he's sort of he's rolling, sliding, meandering, whatever he does to the rim. He's not he's not you know running straight into people's chests. He's finding ways to change the angle he's moving. So he's 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 you know hitting his right shoulder is hitting their right shoulder. So it's kind of like they're they're almost like uh, 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 clipping each other and passing. And that's an obvious foul versus just like you running to someone's chest. Maybe it's a charge. Maybe it's a verticality play or something like that. Like these are skillful things. This is like the old. Uh, I think Paul Pierce was the best example. People always hate like the pump fake jump into a guy foul. <laughs> Paul Pierce back in the day was the guy who would yeah. create enough space, enough separation, so that when he would pump fake, the player was jumping towards him, and it wasn't this thing where he pump fake. I would jump straight up in the air, and he jumped straight into the guy. No. Well, like, well, Paul Pierce had the great thing. Like this is a footwork thing. So yeah. if you do a step back. It's like a one-two step back. Well, what he would do is the one and a half, the foot, the, the like inside foot wouldn't actually leave the ground so that he could actually pivot back forward. So not only would you get the guy off balance, but they actually thought you were going to be three feet farther back than you were. So even just leaning a little bit. And Embiid has these. I will say, I think Embiid hunts fouls. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. Right. It's he, annoying. He, he hunts fouls, but he, he, he gets fouled. Rip, well, like rip throughs, like he he does the Chris Paul rip through thing a lot, and like those types of things, which I personally don't like. But hey, the I don't like it because the NBA I think can adjust some of their. It's hard. It's a very tricky one. But nonetheless, the point about Embiid and drawing fouls is this: he's so strong and so big that you sort of have to be leaning forward, like you have to have your like body, your center of gravity forward because he's going to hit you and knock you backwards. But he's so good about, hey, I know everybody has to kind of be in like full squat, ready to like use all of their strength against me, that that puts them off balance, that if I make a left-right move or this or that, all of a sudden they're too slow for it. So you're constantly trying to lean forward to get ready for the contact and contest, but also having to be balanced left-right. And that's where he's just so good at it. It's his strength and his mobility that makes you always sort of like a second or half second behind whatever he's about to do. I, I completely agree with that. And uh, that this ends the, since he's in the audience, this ends the uh, trolling Matt Moore portion of the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, geez. So if, uh, so, uh, you know, what, so what would you, um, I think, I mean, I, I think that the, a, a, the big advantage, I think both 
Embiid and Jokic, uh, Embiid and, and Giannis would have on Jokic in general, and even though he's been better on this than he has in the past. And frankly, I think Jok, uh, Jokic, Embiid and Giannis have probably, because of the amount they've had to do on offense, have probably each taken a somewhat of a step back than where they've been defensively. I really? Say, Jokic, you think, has taken a step back defensively? No, I think Jokic has taken oh. a step forward. Oh, okay. okay. The, other okay. Two, sure. the other two have taken a slight step back. So the gap is closer, but I still think there's a gap between those two and, and Jokic in that area. And... But that, that that's my way of leading into. So if you were gonna, if you were gonna, you know, say why Giannis is the MVP, what would you, where would you go with that? Man, this one's a little bit tougher because Giannis is just so spectacular. But I have a hard time singling out the one thing, you know, like where you can with some of these other guys. He's just he's as he's as good as he's been really for the last two or three years. I look at his shot profile; it's a little interesting. He's been taking like I think this is the furthest average distance that he's taken which is in part he's just so much more comfortable taking mid-range and threes which I love even though I know he's somewhere around 29 30 percent from three I still just think it's so valuable of him to be willing to do it and and the confidence and when he does hit those and he has games where he goes you know three of four three of five or whatever and they just completely break the game uh so there's that those kind of those things to him um I There is like the fatigue of Giannis in that he's been good enough to win the MVP for the last three, now four seasons, and will he get it? I I don't know. I I guess I have a harder time making the case for Giannis, even though to me he's easily a top three, maybe even number – like I wouldn't be upset if he got voted, but I don't have that one thing. I mean, it's for for me, I think it's it's like especially with with them being as beat up as they have and and missing Brooke Lopez all year, the fact that they have even a credible defense is – right. is a large testament to him. As good as Drew Holiday is, like they have, you know, their second best like interior defender is mm. Drew Holiday, maybe. Mm. <laughs> so, like that's a that 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 is the, that's one of one of and and obviously just the the you know the malleability to to you know do a lot of different things. Even even as as versatile as as. Uh, Jokic and Embiid are a guy who can who does play primarily facing the basket with the ball in his hands. It's just a slightly different dimension. I think one of the things. This is a weird one. This is not an analytics or even like a basketball thing, but like his courage is important, and I think a leader's courage is very important. And we're seeing the one of the things I'm going to bring up. This is going to sound really. I, I don't. I don't want to overstate this, but in January when Embiid was having that monster month. They played the Memphis Grizzlies with a day off before and after. This is not a back-to-back. And he sat out. It was the first playoff team they had played in, like, 15 games. And he rested that one. And, of course, Philly won that game. And I always just look at that and I go, that was the game that was a chosen rest day? There was no injury. It was just a chosen one. And I look at a guy like Giannis and I just think, the op- one, he's going to play as much as he possibly can. And, two... He is willing to do the things that are so tough, like taking threes, taking mid-range. How many times has he been poster dunked on this year because he always challenges? Like, there's something, too, when your best player says, I, and I honestly believe this about both Jokic and, and Giannis, I don't think they care about this award that much. I think they obviously want to be recognized for their greatness or this or that. But I think they're like, I'm willing to, to look bad in certain moments if it gives my team just a slight edge at helping and, and I, not to perfectly contrast that to some other players like a Harden or, 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 or whatever, but I do think that it, is, it, it should be lauded and it should be noted because it takes that to win at the highest levels. 
So that's a really interesting point. I'll push back on you a little bit slightly um, in terms of those, like especially for someone in, you know, I experience this with Giannis, with someone who has kind of, a, I don't know, chronic conditions that, that occasionally flare up and stuff like that. Sometimes it's just like, hey, he needs, he needs a day-to-day. And it's not a planned thing. It's just whatever, you know, maybe that maybe it's swelled up in a flight or sure. more fatigue or something. So sometimes it's that just... That's just sort of the way it goes. And, you know, I don't, like, you know, famously there's the stories of, like, the, the lockout days in Milwaukee where it's, like, no one's allowed in the gym because that's the only way to keep Giannis out of the gym. Right, right, doesn't right. Actually, doesn't actually keep him out of the gym. But still, I think he's, <laughs> like, as he's, as he's gotten older, he's kind of realized, actually, you know, a day off is okay. Um, so I, 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 I... I see what you're saying, but I, I think reading into that too much is maybe doing Embiid a disservice. Um, Embiid maybe not the perfect guy to, to contrast it to. I mean, I definitely think yeah. there's other players in the NBA that you couldn't. Uh, and it's funny. I look at this almost as as eras. You know, I look at the LeBron era, and you could even maybe throw in a, a, a KD or something. Just that, like, now we're 30 plus, 30 years old and plus. And then I look at the middle generation. You got Giannis and Jokic in there, and then you have the upcoming one that would include guys like John Morant and, and, and some of these guys. And I really do feel like there is a sense of that older generation, for whatever reason, has tried so hard to handcraft their own narratives and, and, and this or that. And I just feel like with Giannis and Jokic in particular, they seem so unburdened by that. And then by the time you get – the young guys are too – it's too hard to tell because they're so early. Maybe they will evolve differently. But they seem to also have this idea of like – more resigned to the fact that whatever is said about them legacy-wise and narrative-wise is more out of their control, so they try less hard to do it. And, and, that's, and that translates to basketball, too, because when you know a guy just doesn't, he'll do, cut off his arm to win a game, like that just matter, that just, it, it means something to you as a team versus a guy that maybe is a little focused on some other things, just even just a little bit. And I think that's like that, that slight thing, and I don't want to say that, that like, MB doesn't have that, but I think this year's playoffs is going to be yep. a pretty big telling point in in, in that for him. For um, sure, that's like you know people like uh, people were wondering why I didn't have him in that like the tier one A with it was KD and Jokic and and, and Giannis. Giannis and what kept Embiid from that, and it's just it, it's sort of just that that tiny little thing uh, to get him to that that like the the do everything. It's like no, I'll. I can and I, I, I will and can effectively play this entire fourth quarter, Doc, so you don't have to play the back right. center who's gotten, right. his, who's gotten, his, who's gotten our, 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 our head caved in every time we've played him this series. Not that that's happened to Philly in a recent playoff <laughs> series loss. Um, but so, yeah, no, that's a, I mean, that's a, that, that's, that is an interesting point. But, you, I, you know, I, I get a little uncomfortable, like, going too far, like, psychoanalyzing these guys. Like, some of, how much of that is just, like, you know, as a personality, Embiid is mo- the most playful of the three. You know, and, and that and that's yeah. and that's like a different that's a different axis than being like serious. You know, than than caring about basketball. And Embiid, yeah. I think, I, again, I'm with you too. Like, we can go too far into this. I just wanted to make it a thing of. Yeah. I think it's important that great, the best player on a team, everybody knows, is willing to go the furthest and and put themselves in harm's way emotionally or whatever to, for the good of the team. I just think that's an important thing. But I will say I've been very impressed with Joel Embiid this year. And just some of the things he, I, like that Simmons situation was difficult and he was in the wrong, in my opinion, like there were missteps and by his own admission, there were missteps, but I just thought that he had a lot of really insightful reflections on that throughout the season 
that I don't think he probably would have had a year or two ago. So even he has, it, it seems, this like leadership growth in him that's going on. I think he's, I mean, I think part of it is, is you know, um, this is something that, that, again, I saw Giannis go through, just being more comfortable kind of mm-hmm. expressing himself kind of verbally, you know, and, and just like giving, you know, um, I, I, I give our, our, our mutual friend Eric, Eric Name a lot of credit to this because he, he tends to be the person who asks Giannis the questions that, that lets him do that, uh, that, that kind of and, and, like give thoughtful answers to actual questions. But I think Embiid has, even though he's still playful, I think he has, um, you know, he's become more um, willing to give kind of more detailed, thoughtful answers to things, even if it isn't. Like, you know, I, I actually, people people have talked about last year how Embiid, like, threw a Simmons under the bus. Like, that, like, it, se- it seemed to me that he he went as far out of his way as possible to, like, not do that. And, but then at the same time, it's like, but he didn't dump the ball. Like, what do you, what do you want me to say? Like, that happens. <laughs> like, so, it, um, yeah. He's all, he was almost, apolog- like, he sounded very, apolog- like, you know. Not psychoanalyzing. That was preceding psychoanalyze for five minutes. Right. But, uh, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Um, so an interesting thing for me about Jokic this season is this season is, is sort of seemed like a little bit of a house money season. Okay. Like, the Nuggets, you know, given that the, the Jamal Murray hasn't played and maybe he'll be back soon and and MPJ has, you know, both been hampered and out all season. Um, the level of sort of expectation of ultimate success for this season, that burden just really isn't there. Mm. Like Giannis is, you know, that, that that's maybe, okay, we won one, but now I want to win another one. And Embiid hasn't. Whereas there was, there, like... I don't think you'll find anyone who really was going to say that this is, you know, anything more than really a gap year for Denver, frankly, with, with Murray missing most or all of the season. Um, yeah. You, I, yeah, I think there's two things here. Num- number one, I'm so fascinated by this when we look at player, like all-time greats' career arc and what things maybe happened that had unintended consequences down the line, you know, that that, that changed them. And in a weird way... Obviously, Denver would have a significantly better chance at an NBA championship this year if they had all of their guys. But there's a huge sort of benefit that that the team is getting from this experiment, and that is that we just talked about Jokic kind of going to another level as a scorer. I mean, a lot of that is by necessity. And I think that the dominance, like last year, his numbers, points per game this year and last year are almost identical. The difference is this year he's scoring on double teams and sometimes triple teams, and the efficiency has been the same. So, I, and, and when you watch it, it matches, the, you know, this, this is an eye test thing I'm talking about. Like, the shots he has had to make this year have been more difficult than the ones he's had to make last year. And the efficiency has been the same. So, to me, that's the benefit of now, if you, whether it's this year or next year, you add a more coherent, like, floor spacing. You get, you get Michael Porter back and you get Jamal Murray back. Now, you have that in your back pocket of, hey, even if those guys don't have it going, I could still score through double teams and triple teams, even against very good defenders, you know, you're still going to have to bring a second guy over. And that probably just aids you. And I don't know that he would have reached these levels if he would have had the security blanket of Jamal Murray, who every now and then just goes off for 35, 40 points. Um, so that's one of them. But the burden that you're talking about, again, we're, we're kind of getting into psychology corner here again a little bit, just talking about, like, 
like what mental burden does he have about the success this season? I honestly don't know that Jokic feels that. And I know this is the craziest, one of the craziest things about him. I think Jokic is remarkably present. And I think about this with Giannis too. But Jokic cares less than probably any other great player about how he is perceived. And that, and so I think last year he battled really hard down the stretch when we all knew last year the Nuggets weren't winning without Jamal Murray, but you wouldn't have known it from watching him play. And I think the same is true this year. Is there a burden of, oh, we don't have to win? We don't have to. I don't think there is with him because I think he just approaches every game sort of like day by day and, hey, I'm going to go out there and try to win. And if we don't, you know, I'll live with we did the best we could. Sure. That, no, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. So, but in terms of... of... Have the expectations for this season like actually come back now that the Nuggets have been as good as they've been? And obviously Jokic has been, you know, we, I think we have been reasonable to expect that he would, given the heights he hit last year, there was more, there was more room below than mm. above. All right. But now with, you know, with, you know, and, and you can probably tell me better, like Jamal Murray might be back soon. Right. Um, what does that, does that change things at all? And how does that, how does that affect how they approach things? I mean, I feel I, I still think that me trying to picture the Nuggets winning the, the championship this year, it's just so hard to do. I mean, the, the things you have to think about going, I mean, Denver's going to most likely be on the road in the first round. So every round, they'll likely be a road team all the way through to the finals. It's hard to picture them getting that. And then even, especially we're only, what, 30, 40 days away from the, the end of the season. Jamal Murray... We got an update last week, or maybe it's been seven, eight days, that he hadn't started contact practice. So I, I just I have a hard time imagining Jamal Murray getting up to the level it would take to beat the Phoenix Suns. And then you start talking about a first-round matchup with the Warriors or the Grizzlies. Even those teams, if he's only got seven games, five, seven games under his belt, are you ready to go guard John Morant in a playoff series? That I, It's just so hard for me to picture it. So... I don't know that Denver feels that internal pressure to do this. Um, and I certainly don't look at it and go, I expect Denver to win the first round. I look at it that they can, and I would not at all be surprised if they just can't and don't because of the, the variables are just so they're, – they're more variables this season than any I can remember. So, okay, assuming – so, so this, is, this is always weird because we're, ta- you know, we're talking about playoffs this year. We're, we're, we're talking about the MVP this year, but – at a certain point, and this is something that I, I, I often like fight against, is like the instant skipping ahead to something else. Right, but right. Here we are. Um, <laughs> the like, Nuggets. The Nuggets warranted. Uh, no. So what? Uh, like what? What have the Nuggets learned this season that uh, that that you know will apply? You know, okay, you've mm. you've, you've added this to Jokic this year. Um, so okay, this year might not be the year. So next year is the year. Um, what what have they learned? Um, this is you know this is one of those things where um, I I think that the fact that the, the Denver front office I think you'll agree with me is pretty good at filling the roster out with plausible players yeah. and finding which of them can play is even if you're not going to win the title this year, just seeing what you have in Bones Highlander or Zignaji is is uh, is a useful like application of those 82 games. There's no question about it. Both guys, I'm so curious to see if if they're retained next season because when you start to talk about how do you get better with your core, like six, seven guys, you know, Bones and Zeke, they represent, I think Bones is a hell of a player. I think Zeke's a hell of a role player. I think Bones is a hell of a player. But those guys next year even, are they going to go up against Chris Paul and make an impact or are they going to be an anchor there? It's tough to know, man. That's a 
there's, it takes a lot to be able to be at Chris Paul or Steph Curry's or Luka Doncic's level. And the way the NBA works, it's so easy to highlight a guy if they're not at the level. They're so easy to find that guy and hunt them out. Um, so I don't know if those are guys that you end up cashing in to get one veteran who's not, whose upside is already established. But here's what I would say I've learned. I don't know what the front – it's going to be a very interesting summer to see how the front office approaches this. What I've learned is that the Nuggets are a top-10 offensive team despite losing two of their best offensive players, two of their three best offensive players. I really, I really think, after watching this season, Jokic is more dominant as an offensive player than even I had thought two years, even as recently as two years ago, where I thought you needed to have some other creators because he's good at setting the table for those guys. Now I look at it and I go, almost any combination of five guys you, or four guys you put around him, you're going to have a great offense, and that is his MVP skill. He just knows how, oh, you can do this, this, and this. Okay, I know how to do everything that makes that good. You get a completely different player. You can do this, this, and this. I know exactly how to change my game now to break to accent that. So part of me looks at this roster and says, do you have an elite perimeter defender? And if not, what does it cost to get that guy? And could you sacrifice just a little bit of depth and offense around the, the, the margins to add a little bit of defense and maybe even length around the margins? And I think, to me, if I were in charge of the Nuggets, that's probably what I would be looking to do with the roster going into next season. Sure. I'll, I'll put a pin in that for a second. Uh, Muhammad has been uh, waiting patiently with the, with the question, so let's uh, bring him up on stage. And, uh, and uh, if you can unmute yourself and, and uh, if you got questions for Adam or myself. Bottom right of the screen there is, is, the, is the, uh, the unmute button. Okay. <laughs> struggling with it. Right. Struggling tech line. So um, I guess wall, wall if, 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 again, if you've got a question, please jump in. But um, well, well, just to kind of piggyback on that. So I look at a guy like Austin Rivers who is, you know, he has a skill offensively. He's got a quick first step. That's his skill. Uh, is that enough? Because his defense has been very good. Is that the type of guy where you say he's not a great offensive player, but he's not a, he's not a terrible one, but he's okay, but he's a defensive player. They've got a guy, Dave on Reed on a two way, I like his length. I think he's got like a seven-foot wingspan, um, and he can knock a set shot three, and he can cut. Is that enough offense that now you say, hey, we just need defensive guys? And the offense, as long as you can make 33% of your threes and not be a guy that's not guarded, um, that Jokic is just so good, I think he can make it work now. And then on top of that, Denver this year had 13 guys, 12 or 13 guys that you can make an argument should be in the rotation. And I think that actually causes problems. It's been, you said Tim Conley's been great. He's been a little too great at that, at finding like seventh, eighth, ninth best guys in a rotation. And Denver might benefit from having just nine guys. And then a little drop off of guys that can fill in for here or there. Uh, that might be the next move for them. They've ended up in situations where they, they couldn't keep everybody. They, they, they right. basically, they, you know, they didn't get much for Malik Beasley and, and uh, Vanderbilt. And yeah, well, and yeah. And, and by the way, would, Vanderbilt be a good player next to Jokic. I think that well, okay, maybe he can't shoot, but he can. He he offensive rebounds like a madman and and is a great cutter. Um, do you know how valuable offensive rebounding is with a Jokic system? I mean, it basically we talked about this a lot, but when you put gravity in the corners at the top of the key and then at the baseline, I mean, you create this perfect triangle where the defense is stretched in all directions at all times, and that's what Jared Vanderbilt represents. And Chris Finch had found that. 
you know, in, in Minnesota, I know it's actually had a bad four-week stretch or something here, largely because the defense has dropped off. But the offense with him on the dunker spot, just it's the hardest spot to help off of when you have a nice little drop-in or put-back guy there. It's just so hard for a defense. Exactly. No, I think, but I, but uh, that is a good point. But the, the, it's actually, for as much as we always call for like consolidation trades, it's actually pretty hard to make. And I think that <laughs> leads to what my question for you was going to be is, um, you know, what if you were going to say, okay, go get a veteran X? What would veteran? What would X be? Uh, it, uh, yeah. Position type of player. Even if you want to name a name of a guy, he's like, I, I want that guy on this team next year. I don't know that I have a name for you, but it would, it's definitely the shooting guard, or, or I should just say guard spot, because the shooting aspect of that, I think, is a little less important. But it's a guy that you can say is, it's funny, because Gary Harris was this guy until he wasn't all of a sudden. But a guy that can just like be a zero on offense, meaning not a negative, not a positive, but hey, he's going to make some shots, he can cut, he can finish at the rim a little bit. And then that just says, hey, you're going to make... Um, uh, Mitchell's job really difficult, or Curry's job. You're just going to make it 20% harder, and I think they need that guy. Josh Hart. I mean, yeah. So, so the thing about Josh Hart is he's a smart player, right? Like, he's come through a smart system uh, in bet, college. Bet on Nova. Always bet yeah. on Nova. <laughs> I mean, Villanova players are definitely like, yes, that this is that that's a Jokic ball player because you know this. A, like, a, a continuity offense just requires guys that can read. They're not difficult reads if we all played in 25% speed. It's can guys make those reads when they're happening one after the other after the other. And he's one of those guys that can do that. Is he a great shooter, great ball handler, this or that? Like, no, he's good at all of them. But he can read the court quick enough that Jokic's brain can take over the rest. Sure. No, that makes sense. And obviously, like you, you mentioned Davon Reed earlier, I think. I mean, I, if there's one thing that playoff basketball over the last three, four years has shown us is you can't have enough, like, big six, seven guys who can make shots. Right. Like, you know, with six four to six like the six the versatile six four to six eight guys. It's just it's not possible to have enough of those guys on your roster. And he have you done any research on this? Because Davon Reed I think has a seven foot or seven one wingspan. And yes, he's six seven, but functionally he's really six nine because because the wingspan, especially when we talk about defense and screens and getting in passing lanes, if you put Bones Highland has a six nine wingspan, Davon Reed's seven foot. You start to get out, you know, to some of the Michael Porter is is really long. Even if those guys aren't phenomenal defensive players, I just think there's this cumulative um, wingspan thing that happens where all of a sudden switches are easier to make and fighting around screens and trapping, playing up on screens and trapping is easier because all of a sudden you have this extra like cumulative foot or two feet of <laughs> arm span right. in the lanes. Right. So I, I mean, I. So this is this is sort of a, a tools versus production debate. Right. And yeah. I, it, like not to apply it to Davon Reed, who I think is a is a solid defender. Yeah. Um, and someone who's also like, if, if, I, I doubt you're familiar with him as a prospect coming out of Miami, but like he, I mean, he's he's had some injuries, so he's not quite as athletic. But mm. I think he's improved his overall like ball skill level since then. Right. But um, but uh, uh, you know the, the the well, he's got great defensive tools. Look at look at his wingspan and stuff. Yeah. Okay. But if he if he has these great defensive school to tools and he doesn't, he never rebounds or or gets steals mm. or block shots like. Okay, <laughs> like so, I do think that like like you know if, if the proof is sort of in the pudding, and either that either those attributes contribute to to actual defensive playmaking or they don't, um, and that's not to say you know um, you know in in the case of all those guys, I think that they do. You know, Michael Porter Jr. not a great 
overall defender, but his size does allow him to do certain things. Um, right. Now, if you put him in motion kind of away from the action, um, you can right. kind of befuddle him. <laughs> Not- very, very easily befuddled, yes. Yes. <laughs> but, I mean, as, if, in a, in, against a more stagnant opponent as like a weak side help guy, like, he can do some things. So, and, I, and I think there may, and here's the two things is I think that it might be compounding. Like you have one of those guys on the court. Does it matter if you have a, but if you pair Davon Reed with Faku and Monte Morris, does like his length, his extra four inches of wingspan or whatever it is, does that like just completely dissolve? Maybe. But then there's this other part of Jokic is such a unique defensive player because I honestly believe that he's an elite defender at a lot of different things. It's just, so can he, you, t- you mentioned rebounding, you mentioned, you know, some of that other stuff. If you could just keep guys out of the paint, then all of a sudden you have an elite rim protector in Jokic. I mean, I know it's not traditional rim protection, you're blocking shots, but you have a guy that is just going to always like cut off the angles so that the, if you have these long perimeter defenders and multiple of them, they compound to make up for what you lack, and then Jokic compounds to make up for what they lack on that other side. Zeke Nagy is another great example of this. Great perimeter defender, great three-point shooter. Not sure he's a great interior defender, is that really a bad thing, though, if you're playing next to Jokic? That's, it's one of the questions they'll have to answer. So the, I'm glad you brought this up about, like, like, I mean, first of all, being big and in the way is even if you're not an elite rim protector, like being a seven-foot, a 200-and-many-pound seven dude standing yeah. near the basket, like that, that does have some, that, 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 you know, does have some value regardless. Um, this is sort of the, the, uh, the, and, and, and I, I lied earlier when I said this ends the Matt Moore trolling portion of the show, but, uh, the, and, and we, we, uh, Matt and I, uh, hardwood paroxysm, if, if folks don't know him, go uh, way back. Matt, yeah. Had this, had this debate, uh, the other day about, about defenders is it always seems like, you know, bigs who like to play and drop coverage when that, when the, that coverage fails, it's always the bigs fault. Mm. It's it's, it's it, I, I described it as it's, it's a hammer and anvil, mm. and the anvil's always the one that gets the blame. Like right. last year, like the Nuggets, like people like to say that that Jokic got cooked by the Suns last year. The right. Nuggets got cooked by the Suns last yeah. year, and yeah, Jokic was the guy standing in front of of Chris Paul or Devin Booker as they're draining elbow jumpers. But where was the other guy? Like you know, that's that's, that's sort of where you start to see the drop off and not having. You're, when it's when when the backcourt matchup is Booker and Paul versus Rivers and and Compazzo, um, I it, it, like yeah. it, it, it being Jokic's fault that one side gets the best of that is is sort of <laughs> is kind of funny. Um, so, I yeah, no, but but I think that's to agree with you in that you put like say just for you know the guy that I you know we talked about this at the time. Um, a couple of years ago, I strongly advocated the Nuggets to trade Michael Porter Jr. in a package to get Drew Holiday. Yeah, and that's exactly what I'm envisioning. Like you, yeah. you see the, like how effective that pick and roll defense has been for the Bucks over the last several years, or just last year, I guess, um, of of having you know Brooke Lopez elite rim deterrence, and then Ho- Drew Holiday can you know make that guard's life hard. Um, that's all of a sudden okay. Yeah, fine. You're stuck playing drop coverage, but it's pretty tough to beat. Um, so the Michael Porter question is so interesting on all of this because I, I honestly think that he has a healthy year this year. I think he plays great. And no matter what way you decide to go, I think Denver would be in a good spot. Like you want to try to build this nuclear offense that's just unsolvable and maybe your defense is only average. But, hey, this is a very repeatable against all defenses type of offense. And I, I buy that. I think that there is a path where I see that working. 
Or the other one was, hey, look at how good Michael Porter is. He's a little redundant here, but every team's going to want a 6'11", 45% three-point shooter who can also, you know, move and cut and dunk and do these things. So, you know, I, I just think that they could have very easily pivoted from it. I just don't know that you can anymore. Because I'm with you. Like, part of me, I, I love Michael Porter's game. I just think it's such a beautiful, like, he has such a beautiful shot. He drives me nuts because he has a lot to learn about the game. But, but his talent just shines through all of that. But would I traded him for, like, an OG Ananobi? I mean, to me, yeah, because then now, because like I said, Jokic's offense is so great that maybe all you need is spot-up shooting and 45% to 39%, not that big of a, you know, it's a drop-off, but whatever. You make up for it by having all these defenders everywhere. But I just don't think, I, I don't know what you think, but I don't think Michael Porter gets traded anytime soon just by virtue of, I'm not sure anybody's going to take that risk on him. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, uh, it's something that, that we've, we've talked about a lot. Like, I've, I've, I've frankly never been the biggest Michael Porter guy, but I certainly starting last year in the playoffs, I, I started to get what people saw. I mean, I yeah. started, I, especially, I, um, especially after they traded for, for Aaron Gordon. Um, but um, just the, that is, a, you know, I, I've said nice things about the, the Denver front office earlier. I do think that giving, um, you know, a, a year early, giving a big contract to a guy yeah. with a lengthy um, I've, I think I've, I've mentioned this story before, but the, the Nuggets picked ahead of us. Um, uh, uh, I think my second season in Milwaukee, the year that, that Porter was, was, was drafted. Um, and when, he, when, he, when the Nuggets picked him, uh, I could, you could hear an enormous cheer go up from the room that all of her medical staff had. <laughs> just because they didn't, they, they, weren't, they weren't ready to have, like, yeah. we didn't think he was going to drop to us, and they just didn't want to have to have the argument oh. about do we do we or don't we? Because you know we were at seventeen that year, and like, yeah. at that point, it's like okay, this talent is probably worth it, but right. but for for my me as physical therapist for the Milwaukee Bucks, my day to day is significantly better if that doesn't happen. So. Right? <laughs> Can I ask you? Since you were in yeah. those rooms, I I am so curious if because I try to make sense of it too, like Denver part of Tim Conley's MO has just been paying guys early and like taking care of guys and this or that. And I think it's more his personality and sort of like his um, like personal, like way he approaches things more than it is any logical thing. But I also wonder if part of it was they thought you pay him early and then you can trade him next summer. Whereas if you waited and he was, you know, it maybe becomes harder to trade. Like, Hey, we just want him to have one good year. He's probably more likely to get injured later on. Like the longer you go, if we get through one year and he's great. Now we have a max contract player that's equal value to max contract or close that we can trade for something else. And that just, it, it broke the worst possible way. I, there might be something to that. I just, you know, the, the, I think in general teams probably, and I think they've probably gotten better at it. Um, but like, how much? How much did, for example, is Charlotte going to lose out by not re-signing Miles Bridges early? Like, it'll cost him a couple million dollars a year. But, but what's the, the 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 downside of him just not being good this year, or him hurting himself this year? Like the risk. I think I think teams are teams generally. The, the restricted free agency system is, is enormously pro-team. And I, I think that teams willingly tend to shoulder too much of the risk mm. in these, these kind of extension negotiations. But if, what I'm saying is if Denver kind of thought going into the season, like, hey, we probably – Michael Porter Jr. is probably not a long-term plan. Murray's out. This next year, is pro, we're probably not going to win. I, I just wonder if they were looking more towards this upcoming summer – 
and they felt like having that contract that makes a max contract tradable sure. as opposed to trying to trade a you know restricted free agent or whatever like i just that's what i was wondering is if they were trying to get a little too smart and put themselves in position to make a big splash this summer that's no no, no I, I i frankly hadn't considered that uh that thought process and that doesn't that doesn't not make sense put it that way because it yeah. is i mean just the the not to go cap geekery but like that deal is easier to make with a guy already under contract than as a right trade. exactly exactly so yeah. that, that that so that i mean that that's an interesting point um yeah but maybe not worth the risk overall but i just Indeed. there's a scenario where there's no murray this year and michael porter averages 22 points a game yeah. he's shooting 44 percent from three and you think okay he's not long term but who wants a 6 11 44 percent 22 point per game shooter yeah, well, and 44 percent on high volume of right shots. <laughs> like you know we, we um I, I, I don't think it can be understated the degree to which Michael Porter Jr. is an elite three-point shooter. I think he's one of the best in the NBA. I honestly oh, no, think. No, I mean, there, there's, you know, that it's like, you know, I've, I've done, like the graph I tend to do is like, you know, guys' percentage on contested and uncontested threes. And there's a lot of guys who can, you know, make 45% of their uncontested threes. But the guys who are like, are up high 40s on uncontested and above 40 something uncontested. That's a small group. That's like yeah. the Curry's and Clay Thompson and Kyle Corver and Duncan Robinson and Joe Harris and Michael Porter Jr. and Jose Calderon. Who's <laughs> 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 shows up there too? But that's a, there you go. <laughs> um, not, not, not that I have this chart memorized, but that's, so that's I mean, he's, I mean, he's right up there with that group. And, you know, being 6'11, he can get those shots off. So that's, that is, that is, that's pretty useful. Um, but yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. What, you know, it's unfortunate that he hasn't really been able to play the role that he was so good at for about two weeks last year. But what, right. let's, you know, maybe maybe it's kind of a damp squib way to end this, this, this discussion of Nikola Jokic's greatness. But Aaron Gordon has always been a player that I've been very intrigued by. Yeah. And it seemed like he found the perfect spot in as like that fourth guy um, in, in, in Denver last year. How has he been this year? Has he exceeded your expectations? Is he still... Um, you know, what is, is he some, someone you think is, it remains in their long-term plans? What, uh, how do you see that? I, I love Aaron Gordon and I love his game and I didn't know it that well, you know, obviously following him very loosely when he was in Orlando, I, I, I feel bad for him cause he's so not cut out to be a number two guy, um, offensively at least like I, I he's, and he seems content with that. The, th- the funny thing about, about him is you think a lot of these guys that get drafted earlier, this or that, or they're going to be like, oh, I got to score. I need my touches. He seems pretty content to just not touch the ball. And he's really – he's so strong and he's so big that Denver – I mean, Jokic is the king of creating mismatches just by virtue of where he gets to – how he handles the ball, where he is on the court. Teams are always just like getting switched. And Aaron Gordon has really figured out – hey, like these actions trigger me to get a, a, a shooting guard on me. And when I get that, I'm just too strong. I'm too big. I just duck in or I get the rebound or whatever. So I love how he's fit. And I'm with you. Like the thing that I would say about him this season is he's been remarkably inconsistent. Some of this might just be fatigue. And I think a lot of this has to be he's just not good enough if he needs to be like a second scorer or this or that. He's just not good to be that consistently. But when you talk about bringing back a Porter and a Murray, and, and by the way, you still have Barton and Bones and all these other guys that can create, when he just gets to play off and read the court, he's been so good at it. Um, and so offensively, he's been great. And then defensively, 
I, I, up and down, like there have been moments this year where I go, wow, that's a all defensive team, like first or second all defensive team type player. And then there's games where he gets absolutely torched by, you know, guys that I w- I'm shocked he gets torched by. I have a feeling that probably has to do with fatigue. He's been asked to do so much for so long this season, and he's probably, you know, not playing super hard. Um, but I, I'm very curious to find out if he's the elite defensive player he is sometimes or if he's just an inconsistent defensive player. Sure. Um, before I let you go here, um, first of all, I, I haven't really given you a chance to uh, to talk about DNVR at all. So I'll let you get out of here by uh, talking about talking about that venture and uh, and and let let you pitch some of your stuff and, and uh, yeah, let's, let's end that way. Well, DNVR, we just the big news with us is we just launched CHGO, which is a uh, our third market. We we started obviously here in Denver, um, hyper local coverage of our sports teams, community driven. Um, driven by the platforms that are available to us. We do pregame and postgame shows. We're kind of like almost trying to replace your cable news provider in, in many ways, as well as written content and all that other stuff. And now we have a Phoenix PHNX for Phoenix fans, Phoenix Sports, and now CHGO. I was just out there last week as we launched it. And the talent... Oh, I see. I the, see. You're, at, you're, out, you're out in Chicago. I, I see. Are you out in Chicago? No, I'm, uh, oh. I'm still in Milwaukee. I'm, oh, okay. <laughs> hey, man, you never know. Milwaukee, MLKE, I don't know what it would be. Maybe coming soon. Um, but, no, it's just it, it's cool. I got to meet the team, and there's so many talented people at that CHGO staff. So if anybody is a Bulls, Bears, White Sox, Cubs, Blackhawks, Sky fan, check them out because there's so many talented people over there. Well, very cool. And and you, you probably had one of the um... – you, you, I, I know you. You had you opened a you opened a sports bar in Denver with perhaps the least auspicious uh, timing of an opening. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true, man. But we're rolling now, and now it's uh you know the bar's been fun. It's a uh, it's a good spot. We've had uh, I, the best testimonial I can give you is somebody got engaged uh, with somebody they met at the DNVR bar. So how cool is that? Uh, there, well, there you go. You are you, you are literally bringing people together. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Adam, this has been this has been a lot of fun. This hour has has, has flown by. Um, I I mean, if if I can, I'd, I'd love to have you back on, both to you know talk nuggets, but also, um, I mean, you know, you you're one of the you're one of the people who has the the deepest kind of basketball playing experience, kind of in the in the in the basketball media. So I think you you bring a uh, you bring sort of. Um, uh, insight to, to talking about what's going on in this playoff in, in playoff sure. as well. So if, if you're willing not to put you on the spot on my radio. Well, first of all, Seth, yeah, first of all, Seth, I missed you, man. We were talking before this, like how little we've talked this year is we've both been just grinding away. We're both grinders uh, working away at some projects, but at number two about the basketball part, I've recently dropped about 20 pounds. I, my basketball game is, is at a whole new level right now. I'm feeling so I'm 38. I'm, I'm like, I, I already I'm see, yeah, I, and see, that's the thing. I, I thought I was retired. I, I thought I, I got a Jeff Green-like jolt here to where I, uh, I'm rejuvenated. So I, I, I think I've extended my career a couple of years. Yeah, well, no, I, I, was, I'm, I turned 45 in a couple of weeks. And I, I was basically, before the pandemic, my plan was I'm going to play until I hurt myself. <laughs> you know, rehab and be done. And now I'm just like, let's just skip the hurting myself. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably. I smart. see that. I've, uh, I, I, like, before we let you go, I guess I, I asked Matt if he wanted to come up on stage and yell at us. So, Matt. You're up on stage. Yell at me. Matt! Hey, guys. Hey, Matt. Great combo. Loved it. Five stars. No notes. That's all? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to yell at Seth in our Slack. That's it. Okay. Well, there you go. <laughs> well, actually, I, I, do have, I do have one just because he didn't ask a question, Adam. I thought we did. I thought we talked about it. Uh, maybe I wasn't in on it. I'll listen to the callback on it then. 
Well, ask it real quick because I ask you. I don't want to. I don't want to drop the ball. Seth thinks that Jokic is a B minus defensively, and I think he's out of his mind. You think he's a what? I think he's an A minus this year. I think it's A oh. plus Giannis, A for Embiid, and A minus Yoke. So here's here's what I said in in in, in our in our Slack is I think that overall he's probably been a B or a B minus, but like in terms of overall impact, those like game saving plays push him up, kind of a, a, you know a half grade or two. So I man maybe gets us to a similar spot, but I think like. Like play and play. Get him, Adam. <laughs> the thing I, I well, I, I just don't have hot takes about Jokic's defense. Like this is the hard part about it. What? I think. Well, no. Here's what I here's what I say is I think Jokic is elite at more aspects of defense than people realize. Like elite, he's one, he's got the best hands of any big in the NBA. Like forget Bam Adebayo, this or that. Like part of his rim protection is guys are afraid to get too close to the rim because he steals it from them when they get in there. Uh, so I think he's elite at a lot of these different things. And if he gets the right matchup in a playoff series where there's like not this guard that can get into the paint or drag him out, I think he's gonna, you're going to see like Denver hold teams under 100 in some playoff games. But if you put him against Donovan Mitchell, Rudy Gobert, spread pick and roll, like that's, that's the area he's below average for some guys. So grading him as a B plus or A minus or whatever have you, like he's an A plus at 95% of it. And he's kind of a D minus at, at 5% of it. And depending on what matchup you catch, you'll, you'll be able to argue your side. <laughs> now, Matt, on that note, with Matt, with Matt sputteringly <laughs> angry at, 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 at someone he thought was his ally, I think that I angry. think I took his side on this. Jokic is a lead. He's like one of a top five defensive center at declar- most things. I'm declaring victory and going home. Okay, um, there you go. Adam, thanks a lot for joining us. Matt, thanks for jumping on. Uh, if you haven't listened to my conversation earlier today with Chris Herring, uh, I uh, recommend that. I am back tomorrow with. Uh, with a guest from the world of entertainment, uh, Owen Ellickson, a uh, longtime writer in Hollywood, most recently of uh, Superstore, uh, is, is mm. going to come on. He is a he is a uh, former Warriors fan who has settled on being a Bucks fan. So we're going to talk uh, oh, wow. Hollywood and some NBA. So that's uh, that is tomorrow afternoon. So join us for that. Thanks a lot, Adam. Really great to talk to you. Guys. Th- thanks so much, Seth. That was great. Thanks, guys. Talk later.